Good morning and welcome to the Solving Wildfire podcast. I'm your host, Brian Gardner, and this is a highly abbreviated Flashpoint edition. Today we have Jeff Baxter joining us, founder of Baxter Aerospace, building drones for tactical fire surveillance. Jeff has a very engineering-heavy background, including SpaceX leading R&D at Ericsson to automate the Sikorsky Skycrane, and his racing team still holds a land speed world record. I encourage you to listen to the full conversation on the podcast main website. For now, this being a flashpoint, let's jump in. I would love to see somebody say robotic aircraft are not the future. <laughs> I'd love, love to get that quote. Yeah, yeah, racing is great. Racing's always been part of my life from a very early time. The biggest driver for us was put together a team to set what was called the E1 class land speed record. And we built a car that from the ground up was a concept to completion in two and a half years of development and then out to race for a couple of years to set the land speed record. It's challenging work. Like it was not without his bumps. So we had a massive teardown, rebuild, new suspension, new drive system components, new wheels. The whole thing happened kind of mid race week, like working nonstop for day after day after day so that we could bring the car back out that year onto, onto the track. And on our return run the next day, we think we hit a submerged 55 gallon drum and had a massive, massive crash. We were doing, I think around 130 miles an hour when the car had this happen and the driver thankfully was safe. So all of our safety systems worked perfectly. He was able to pop out of the car just fine. And, and that was a big setback for us, but then we, we didn't stop there. We rebuilt the car. Wow. All right. Automation, human in the loop. Humans are amazing because we can learn things without having to write lines of code. But in the wildfire space, we're putting human lives at risk every time someone goes up in the air. And you almost had your driver die. Did that influence any of your propensity for automating dangerous human in the loop systems? We certainly took a good solid look at why our safety systems work and verified that everything that we had planned to work functioned correctly. That, there was a lot of safety systems on that car. And we went through them one at a time and they all functioned as we designed. So there was a good basis to believe that we could put him the same exact driver in that car the next year and have success. We modified the car with a new vertical stabilizer to add more directional stability. So we looked at this very analytically and said, what does it take to take those risks to zero? And so there's the human element. We were on the starting line the following year and we had the car completely rebuilt and all tested and our driver, bless his soul, he had, he had literally had a panic attack from a flashback from the crash and he pops out of the cockpit and he's like, I'm not driving. I'm just, I can't, can't mentally go down this again. And we, we walked around a while and, and it really was heart to heart, like eyeball to eyeball. Does he believe us? Do we do our homework? Do we do it right? And, and he's laid down hot speeds and set the land speed record in that car that year. So it really is thinking very carefully about safety systems, thinking very carefully about how you perform in an interpersonal trust relationship environment too. Those things have to go hand in hand to have a system that can work. One of the things that I really appreciate about this wildfire space, especially talking with people from the operational side, there is so much emphasis that goes back again and again to the safety of the crew, the human safety on the ground. Yeah, definitely. I can't resonate with that more. There's the whole point of what we're doing is to reduce the risk, reduce risk for everybody and expand the reach of firefighting to areas that aren't currently blessed by having a nice big helicopter at the waiting, ready to make a difference. Those things need to be available to people who can't afford them today. So safety is first for sure. 
I think appreciating their risk-taking mentality, we need to have in ourselves as engineers, as designers, as operators, we need to take out every risk everywhere we can so that we don't lose these pilots who are knowingly uh, accepting the risk of life. It's just unacceptable for us to not carry the moral burden of that. Yeah, I agree. This is a really important point. The firefighting pilot is is somebody who's dedicated. They're a passionate community of people who have lost friends in the environment that they operate in. And we want to honor all of those memories of the people who did sacrifice so much for us that are underrepresented, in my opinion, by trying hard to do our best to provide new and better improving tools so that the firefighting risk can go down. It's to me, kind of unconscionable that we can fight war so well at night, remotely with great effect, and we can't put our fires out at night. We don't fly our helicopters at night. We don't deploy our people at night because they don't have the data they need to safely execute the mission. That's a pretty fundamental gap that we need to address. And for me, that starts with investment. It really does us investing all of our effort and time technologically, but also financial investment, gathering up people of like minds to solve the problem. Yeah, it's a combination of challenges. There's the long-term contract cycle, and that's combined with this small business to government sales complexity. These are challenging things for VCs to typically engage in with the hardware perspective. So you lump all those together, you have hardware plus sales to the governments plus long sales cycle. That's a challenging space to be raising money in. Have you made any efforts to raise money philanthropically? Yeah, it's a great question. It's a good fit in some sense that these people are aligned with the mission. They're aligned with the outcome. They want to see great things happen in an industry that's been underserved for so long. The financial realities of fielding a completely new technologically advanced aviation platform are measured in millions, not measured in tens of thousands. And so the magnitude of dollars means we're really looking for foundations, groups of philanthropic individuals. And we've met with a couple of foundations those conversations are ongoing, of course. We'd love to see more engagement in that in the future. We have not landed any philanthropic investment into the company. Let's just straight to Baxter Aerospace. What are you guys solving near term and medium term? Let's start off with some of the hurdles you've already overcome, the successes you've had. And I guess you just had some of those recently. You bet. Yeah, it is simple in some sense. Our efforts around wildfire are based on two things. We need to discover fire when it's small and put water on it. You put water on it when it's small, you can manage it. First, it's the collection of information about the fire. Good visibility or bad visibility in any condition we need to be able to launch. We've been developing an aircraft as the base platform of the sense side of that, the eye in the sky. That aircraft is a 100-pound class, vertical takeoff, long-endurance, wing-borne flight aircraft. Pretty unique configuration. We needed vertical takeoff because we want the ability to not have launch and recovery equipment, easily deployable. It's got to be long endurance so that it doesn't disrupt the other firefighting environment, all the other aircraft. And it really needs to be simple and robust. It needs to be tough. It needs to be able to sustain that kind of firefighting backcountry experience. And that's where we weren't able to find an aircraft that we could purchase off the shelf and begin scaling up. We had to do development ourselves to stand up a brand new aircraft. We've called the aircraft Dragonfly, an aircraft that is arguably the simplest configuration ever of that type of aircraft. We need the ability to scale up. We need many of these aircraft. And so it needs to be tough, robust, ability to take off and land vertically and be low cost. I think you were mentioning earlier some milestones. We've successfully proven out some of the most difficult flight regimes for the aircraft. 
Chief among those is the ability to take the aircraft into full hover, full helicopter hover mode, and control that in different conditions. So that is a major milestone for us. It proves out the technology from a thrust vectoring perspective. Yeah, it's good. It's exciting to see. It's exciting to see our six degree of freedom flying robot come to life. You know, I think that he brings a wealth of experience to our team. He and, and there's a couple of others that are coming from SpaceX and other experience base that really bring a technical expertise. I think the feather in his particular cap is that he's worked hard at a company called Aravel, where they set a world endurance record for vertical takeoff aircraft of 32 hours. The only aircraft to fly that long ever that's vertical takeoff, vertical landing. Inside the industry, there's a lot of understanding that there's value in satellite imagery, for example, and it doesn't provide the tactical response capability we need. It's very kind of large pixel, not updated very often. We need data continuously flowing on active fires so that people know where things are. There's just a gap. We can do the ability of connecting people in the field via backhaul, via Starlink data onto the internet so that they have broadband anywhere effectively is the goal. And that is a big step forward in communication and situational awareness for those people. I wanna ask you why, why doesn't it exist already? And I'm looking forward to having the guys from just down in South of Oregon. They had a $2 million military drone that they were flying for a while and then they shut that down. Partly was FAA stuff, but a big piece too was they can't afford a $2 million drone again because they, they got lucky on the way they got one. So I'm looking forward to going deeper with them. But what's the price point on your Dragonfly? Yeah, that is that is the driver of why we're designing Dragonfly is that nobody can scale up many millions of dollars of drones for firefighting. Yeah, our target is aircraft airframe costs less than $100,000. It depends on what payload. For the payload we need for firefighting monitoring, the whole up package is less than 150 grand. So it's something that a local agency, a local fire department can easily provide to their citizens as a tool in their tool bag. You're looking at 120th of the cost. That's a legitimate game changer in the economics of surveillance. Yeah, the military aircraft, and that's I'm sure where they're coming from, are not designed for low cost. They're designed for their particular mission set and those rule sets are not firefighting rule sets. And that's what we discovered when we tried to go do the same thing was we're getting quotes like a million dollars in airframe. And it was just a non-starter. So that's why we had to go to the beginning and design an ultra simple, highly capable aircraft. Let's go to the FAA question. It's easy to point fingers and say regulations and the FAA are blocking us and blah, blah. But I've found in the drone space, the FAA, they've put people on there that want to see things work. Yeah. Yeah. Right off the bat, I want to just echo what you said. I'm a pilot. I fly an airplane and I appreciate that there are people who are working really hard to make sure that this integrates into the national airspace safely. If you were to run into a hundred pound class drone in an airplane that I fly, it would be bad. <laughs> so like the regulatory side of things is super critical and we really appreciate the FAA and their efforts to make it safely integrated in ways that can scale. I think from our perspective as well, we've had good headway. We feel like there's regulatory allowances already that provide such a great um, both safety culture and also deployability in the firefighting tactical airspace that have been proven out. There's already been unmanned air aviation operations of this class over fires. So it really is not the blocker. For us, it really comes back to how do we build a product that's 
at the right price point, the right reliability, has all of the capability that we need to monitor the fire and provides a unique value. Let's say you guys get the three million bucks you're looking to raise. Technology development happens on schedule and you find the agency leader that says, we want to put this up and use it over this next fire. You believe that the red tape and the paperwork, which everyone knows goes slower than anyone wants it to go. Do you believe that would be anywhere on a critical path for getting a dragonfly up in the air? That's a great question. It hasn't been to date, and so far it looks like it won't be. The reason why I say that with great confidence is that there are good allowances for this kind of operation today. There's no blocks that we see between here and success that are not understood already by the FAA. I think that is not the case for other unmanned operations in the national airspace. There are a lot of blockages to fly cargo over people at night in populated areas. Some of these really difficult mission sets, there's a lot to go in the regulatory space. But when we're fighting in an emergency situation in a temporary flight restriction, those rule sets are pretty well defined. But what's interesting, just to make a side note, the stuff's coming. I have literally flown my airplane next to a UAV that was, was flying in, in similar airspace. So the UAV operations are integrating slowly, and we see good headway in this regard. It used to be a major blocker, but, but now we're seeing things getting figured out. One of the things we're excited about is teaming with manned aviation because they're different. And I don't see a world where there's no manned aviation anymore. I feel like there's such a good use case for for clever people observing things in real time. I think industry-wide, we're beginning to understand more about how that teaming nature can work with these, these kind of assets. There are many fires that we want to turn off that we can't. And there are other fires that are good that we want to burn to help thin the undergrowth and other things, but there are many that truly are destructive and we must do our darndest to turn those off. Those are the ones that we want to detect early and place water on them. In California, there's like 3,000 fires a year, and there's maybe a handful, single digits of aircraft out there doing infrared surveillance of fires. There are two King Airs that are outfitted with these advanced cameras and a few other, what they call NIROPS aircraft as well. And it's just not enough. We love what the manned aviation world is doing. We need to scale it up by like 100 or 1,000. The early detection portion of the work is interesting because there are no available contracts for unmanned aircraft to do the monitoring required to detect these fires when, when they're small. So the only way to detect a fire to the fidelity needed is to field an aircraft over it or send people driving and walking into the forest to go see what's going on. So that early detection portion of the mission is critical because that is the find it before it's a problem solution set. We must find fires when they're small, and the only way to do it is to be looking. There are use cases today where it would be better to have an unmanned aircraft flying continuously. So in particular, when it's impossible to use night vision goggles to safely fly an aircraft, you have bad visibility conditions with heavy smoke, for example. Night vision goggles don't work in those environments. You still want an aircraft overhead, and that we would definitely still be able to take the data in the infrared spectrum without being blocked by visibility conditions and smoke. That's good. Like the reality is, it's complex. The fielding of a robot in a difficult environment in the air is challenging and complex. And so, people who want to wave a wand and think that this is simple don't engage to the depth that it really takes to understand. 
Let's just take this moment and again ask the question, why isn't this happening already? It's easy for investors to just brush that aside saying, oh, the technology is not a problem. It's the market fit or the market uptake or the agency uptake or regulatory, everything except the technology. So why isn't it happening already? Goodness gracious, I can think of a thousand reasons why it isn't already happening. Technology is definitely one of them, for sure. You need technology developed for this space in order to keep the costs in a place that function. That's like table stakes. But beyond that, I think a long time in this particular industry, there was quite a movement against drones in the aviation firefighting arena because people were flying recreational drones to get cool footage and disrupting the whole effort. And so that painted the whole system in a very bad light and set us back substantially. I think that's changing now, but man, what a bummer that that set of decisions that people have made caused the overall response. Why doesn't it already exist? I think too many people have endeavored to drop in with a solution that they thought up in their own sphere and try and force that into the firefighting environment. We've come across that very, very often. And we take the opposite approach. Just tell us what you think as professional firefighters who've dedicated your lives to this. Just tell us what you would love to have, and we will do our darndest to, to cause that to exist. And you guys have broken through that particular barrier with a few people. You have letters of intent signed with some different groups out here. Can you tell us about what those conversations and relationships have become? Yeah, those people are the people who want the community benefit, those who have already active drone programs. People who are seeing the vision of the future of autonomous aircraft and, and their use in this space already have engaged even with the limited commercial drones that have been available for years. So seeing those people say, oh, okay, wow, we could have a 10 hour plus endurance aircraft that could do everything we want. Okay, this is a game changer for us. No longer are we suffering from 20 minute endurance or an hour endurance at the most. It's this kind of, they get it, but now they want more of it. Those are the people we've had the best conversations with. People who are in charge of vast land holdings Australia and Alaska, these are... Are you actually engaged with people over in Australia and Alaska? Definitely, yeah. Alaska has been one of the biggest proponents for what we're working on because, again, their land holdings are not accessible by road. They have fires. There is no road to even get close, so you must address mm. it from the air. They understand the air piece and they understand the advanced technology piece. So is it safe to say when an investor comes and is talking to you, kicking the wheels... If they put in the development money that you need, do you have customers that could use your, let's say, your full production capacity? Yeah, I think that's, that's clearly the case, that they are aggressively interested in new technology that helps them solve these problems. I don't think that's the issue. I think there's the product realization to a point when they're confident they can field it successfully. And we could field it for them or provide data successfully. That's the hurdle. They're not necessarily aviation professionals. So we have partners with our company and we have pilots ourselves so that we can provide them data as a service, not aircraft sales. That's a totally different model than they've experienced from an unmanned aviation perspective up to this point. We've seen limited cases where that's been deployed in Colorado is a good example of this. And it works really well. The people who do the aviation part really well get to do their professional expertise and the firefighters get the data they need. That's the way that the future is going to be built. Yeah, there's definitely fire that's healthy for the forest. It's been that way forever, but more than 90% of the fires are human caused. At some point, we got to say, not all that should be there. I think that's the balance. 
who's the guy with AT&T who's in charge of their disaster response. They're able to put up new cell coverage within three hours of the hurricane going through. So I want to have the question with him. Why isn't that already happening with wildfire? Because those first net trailers are $47,000 a trailer. <laughs> Nobody can afford them. And it covers like this little tiny spot. And, and we haven't even touched on the accuracy of water drop. <laughs> yeah, there's so many good, like we asked the best Ericsson pilot ever to hit the same target four times in a row. And to Jeff Baxter standards, wasn't good enough. He was close within a couple of hundred feet. And that's just not acceptable. We should be able to hit the target every single time. Mm-hmm. Those are the unspoken realities that these people are out there working really hard to do good things. But honestly, if you step back and you think about it, you you did just tell people to walk out on foot and go look at a fire, right? That's what you just told them to do. You're like, what industry does that? Hey, team, would you walk out into the you know, middle of nowhere because we have no data and, and go see it? Like, Wow. That's amazing that we accept that and that's that's not yeah. acceptable and we'll get there. It is the role of government to centralize externalities like fires, mega fires. That is the role of government because no individual person should bear that burden. And they are in the right place. They have the mandate to do it. So a couple of things that I'd look forward to talking more about is what does Starlink do to firefighting? That's like a whole theme by itself. We're really excited about that. I think in addition to that, we really didn't get a chance to talk about SpaceX and all the adventures there. So I'd love to talk about that sometime too in the future. That concludes our flashpoints with Jeff Baxter providing unmanned eyes in the sky for active fire surveillance. The full conversation is available on the Salt and Wildfire main podcast. Thanks for listening.